I think he changed them. Is that better? Hey, hey. I had it on mute. It wasn't off. It was on mute. Do I need to start over now? Are you sure, Will? That's one of those pastors like, dog, man. We just missed 10 minutes of stuff. I've got to hand this recording to someone. What's that? Well, you know, I understand. All right. So they spoke the right message. I should have heard that I wasn't being heard. I apologize for that. Um, the gospel changed them, and uh, it transformed them. I think it's really interesting early on in this passage. In verse 6, as soon as they understood the gospel and it changed them, what did they begin to do? And you became... Right? Is that important? All right, understanding all that we understand about the biblical theology of disciple-making now, follow me, and I will make you, right? You became followers. We don't have to review all that. What does it mean to follow? <laughs> What's the Greek word for follow? What is it? Has anyone got a Greek text? Go ahead. What's the Greek word for follow? There you go. The root, the noun form, mimitas. What is that? We get our English word what? Mimic. What does it mean to mimic? Imitate. What does it mean to imitate? <laughs> Be like. Right? Sound like what we talked about previously today? I mean, what does it mean when Paul said, and you became mimics of us? Is that good? <laughs> right? I mean, Paul actually said, Ephesians 5, 1, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow me only if I'm, that's it. But to them, he's commending them. All five chapters, he doesn't level one criticism of this church. This is a healthy young group of believers, right? Nothing prescriptive here, nothing even descriptive, really, right? So they maintained the right example, and the example was they were followers. And what's verse 7 say? There you go. Does that sound... This is a significant text where we got this little process on the back of our, and you became followers, and then you became examples. What's the Greek word for example? Seven? I know what it is. I just want you guys to hear it. So, there it is. How many of you understand what tupas means? Right? The idea is this. I, had, I used to have a class ring. I gave it to my son to play with when he was a little boy at a wedding. And he lost it. Right? But when I used to go out on Sunday mornings and shake hands, right? I would get in the car and my kids would want to see the insides of this finger and these fingers because they would be imprinted with the insignia of the school that I graduated from. 
right? That's a tupas. That's, a, that's an imprint. Um, a, less, a less spectacular illustration of that is my, my daughter drives a car to school in the morning. I picked her up a little junky Ford Focus, right? And first week of school, right? Why do I get her a junky one? Because I know she's going to drive it with other teenagers around. It's going to get junked up more. So I get her a junky one so I don't have to worry about getting junked up. I don't have to worry about, oh, there's another scratch. There's a ding. You got to park more space. No, no, I don't care. Just junk it up. It's a junky car, right? So sure enough, first day of school, right? <laughs> she comes home and there's this gouge in the passenger side, big dent, chunk of paint out. I was like, man, I mean, you didn't even wait for the first week. You had it the first day, right? Whoever that was made their mark on that car. That's the idea of Tupas. It's an imprint. It's making your mark. The color of the paint of that other car still in that car. That ding. It made your mark. That's what it meant. But think about it. They're transformed by the gospel and immediately they want to follow. And because they're following, they're making their own mark. This is just biblically natural. We're outside the book of Acts now. Okay? I think this is normative first century Christian living that we should just expect as we build the culture. Now what's happening in verses 8 and 9? Would someone read that out loud for us from the back? Verses 8 and 9, somebody. Or right here, Pastor. Go ahead. Okay, so what's happening here, right? Spurgeon said, when the scripture gives common sense, seek no other sense. So what, what do you see when you read those two verses? What's actually happening, right? They're following, all right? Now they're exampling, all right? Now they're influencing. How are they influencing? What's Paul actually finding? He's an evangelist, right? He's always going in various places, to pioneer the gospel. And as he goes into those regions that were just read, what's he finding? Who's he finding? And what's he hearing? He's finding other believers. That's it. And who have they heard all this from? The church in Thessalonica, and how young are they in the Lord? A couple years, maybe. And what they're actually saying, if I can put it even more in contemporary terms, they're saying, Paul, we already know your name and you didn't even give it to us because we've already been told about who you are and all that you taught the Thessalonian believers, we get it. You don't need to stay here anymore. You can go someplace else where the gospel's not been yet. That's what a true evangelist does. Okay? I thank God for the faithfulness of ones that drive trucks and pull trailers. 
and preach revivals at churches, right? But Paul was an evangelist that planted. He did not need to stay there, right? I really think what's going on in verses 8 and 9, I don't think we need to debate about it. We can dialogue about it. I really think it's the language of church planting. Paul didn't see a need to stay there. They knew it all, so to speak. They're saying, Paul, we don't need you. So somehow something's going on here out of organic fellowship and influencing in their own church and in their own city. Something's happening here. At a pretty broad circle around that city where the Apostle Paul does not even see a need to stay. I don't know. You figure it out on your own. Um, uh, but I think that's what's happening here. And they, of course, were folks that were anticipating a right hope. So chapter 2, Paul's reminding them about his relationship that he had with them back in Acts 17. And he's really rehearsing with them the fellowship of their expectant faith. He spends the the first part, uh, and we'll break it up this way, all right, just so you can fill in the blanks and we can listen together, all right? Verse 1, he's talking about his entrance that he had to them in Acts 17. He had a right initiative and a right approach. Verses 2 and 3 talks about understanding his motive. Verses 4 through 12 is you really own the right disposition. Remember, those are familiar verses. I loved you like a father loves a son. I nursed you like a mother. A nurse cherishes her children, right? Um, He's done the right thing the right way. Can we just summarize the first 12 verses that way? He's done the right thing the right way. Unfortunately, I can't say unfortunately, I think, not even inappropriately, I think it's okay for this text to be preached at a pastor's conference. And it's taught a lot at pastor's conferences because this is Paul's, right? It's okay. But Paul doesn't address pastors at all directly in all five chapters. He's addressing the people. Now, we're assuming the pastors or the pastor of Thessalonica is hearing this, but there's no direct address like you see Peter doing in 1 Peter 5 or Paul doing in the pastorals, okay? He's just writing to the people. So why rehearse with the people his initial approach and fruit of his entrance in Thessalonica in Acts 17? I personally feel he's doing this to remind them that this is what they are to continue to do with each other. Right? Have integrity. Speak the right message. Please God, not man. But make sure you're doing it as disciple makers with the right disposition. Love each other the way I loved you. Remember, you're following me in my example. In my stand, right? In my stand and in my disposition. In my doctrine and in my disposition. Okay. I think it's important. I think it's important. Okay? Because of that, I taught you from my example, and you're doing it, how to long for mature and enduring relationships. The first relationship that they loved and were maturing over is the relationship with the Word of God. In verse 13, you received the Word of God as it was indeed the Word of men. The Word of God, not the Word of men, right? Right? which effectually works in you who believe. 
And then he goes on into verse 14 and 15, and he's talking about developing relationships with who? Someone would like to read those two verses. What verses that you mean? 14 and 15. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophet, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men. Okay. So, Paul speaks about a right relationship with him, so now they're having a right relationship positionally and dispositionally with each other, and they're still having an influence, not just with gospel outreach, as we saw in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1, but in verses 15 and 16 here, what other kind of relationship is deepening? It's with other churches who were experiencing the same kind of affliction they were. Think about this, folks. We skate right over this within the flow of the whole text of this letter. This is naturally what disciple-making people do. They grow deeper in the Word with one another, doctrinally, with the right disposition, and they naturally, obviously, have a gospel influence. But with those churches that are established, that are like-minded, there's even an interdependency with them. They didn't start there, but it's a natural outflow of disciple-making mature people in the local church. They're learning from them. They had gone through similar affliction. Right. I think it's important. It's inspired, it's preserved, it's there, and it's there for our learning. We have a lot of... Uh, throwing around of the word independent in our ecclesiology classes. Uh, the Bible doesn't use the word independent one time. You can't even really find a Greek root of it. right? But the Bible speaks a lot about uh, doing things together. It speaks a lot about what we would call interdependence. Even among local churches, to strengthen each other. I think about what God could do and already is doing here in the Houston area. Disciple-making, planting, interdependence, strengthening, learning from each other so that we can do what? More disciple-making, more planting, more interdependence, and many hands make light work. It's just the way God planned it. It's just the way He planned it. Right? I would rather have 300 churches of 30 people than one church of 3,000. Does that make sense? We're just strengthening each other. We always think of big and independent. The Bible doesn't teach that. Again, it's not about size and numbers. Jesus can grow your church any size he wants to. And a disciple making, that way he's controlling the numbers and not you. <laughs> right? But all I'm saying is I think this is what disciple making people do. They long for mature and enduring relationships with the Word of God and with other churches that are like faith and practice. Chapter number three, how do we cultivate right growth patterns? The fervor of our expectant faith. Well, if you go through on your own time, uh, in your Bibles, you find the word faith mentioned five different times in chapter 3. Okay? Five different times in chapter 3. Right. 
We could do it together, but for time's sake, maybe we should just move on. You'll study this, you have. Uh, that's why I say it's the cultivating of our expectant faith here. What's happening? End of chapter 3, or end of chapter 2, the Apostle Paul wants to go see the Thessalonians, and he can't. He's, he's prohibited. Right? So what does he do? Who does he send? All right, there you go. The text says that he sent Timothy. And he sent Timothy to take a spiritual pulse on this church. He wants to make sure they're okay. We know from his report that they are. Because what does Paul say uh, about this church? Or what does Paul say that Timothy said about this church? Let's look at the wording here in chapter number 3. Verse 6, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us, just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Sounds like what John said, right? I have no greater joy than to find my children walking in the truth. But because they had a strong faith and they were growing each other in the faith, Timothy's able to come back and report to Paul that they're strong in the faith. And Paul says here that he's actually got a reason to get up and live the next day because he's so excited about what's going on in that church. But remember the process of how it started in chapter 1. Okay? Chapter 3 is really the outgrowth of chapter 2, and chapter 2 is the outgrowth of chapter 1. Right? And a strong people in their faith are really able to, verse 3, handle affliction. Right? In verse number 5, they're able to handle the tempter. And in verse number 8, they're able to stand firm. And I'll tell you, I, disciple-making people at Grace, and, and you're seeing it in your churches. They really are helping each other through afflictions. They really are helping each other deal with temptation. They really are growing deeper in the Word and standing stronger and stronger. Um, it, just, it just naturally happens. I've always found in verse 13 um, something very interesting. There's a purpose clause here in the Greek language. It's in verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness. And here's the third mention of the imminent return of Christ. So a growing faith needs right spiritual reciprocity. A growing faith is focused on the right passion. And we find that passion here, I believe, in the third mention of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and what is the communicable attribute of God's goodness here that's mentioned when these folks see Christ together? All right, and it continues, increase and abound in love, and what's the progression? So that the purpose clause is what? Establish you in holiness. When? There it is. So disciple-making people are preparing each other to do what? Face Jesus without shame. Can you, can you remember one Bible text that tells us that Christians can actually see Jesus at his return and be in shame? Pardon? 
within the immediate context, that's okay. That was a great, great guess. 1 John 2, 26, 27, and 28. Is it possible for believers to be ashamed before Him at His coming? Yep. 2 Peter chapter 1, If these things abide in you and excel, the Lord Jesus Christ will provide for you an abundant entrance into the presence which means if those things aren't, this is not a performance-based Christianity, you understand that, that would be legalism, right? This is the natural growth of people with one another in Christ's likeness because they're going to see his likeness. <laughs> I just always found it interesting that that's the attribute of God's communicable goodness that is mentioned here, that these are people that are growing in holiness. They're not growing in worldliness, they're not growing in, so remember back to the beginning of the seminar, why aren't your churches growing? Because the world's becoming darker, Christians are becoming more worldly because of stands on separation we've taken in the past. Remember that? Right? Well, in a disciple-making environment, are Christians becoming more worldly or more holy? Right? Isn't that what the text says? And they're growing together, fighting affliction, temptation, and growing deeper in the understanding. They're standing firm in the Word. It's right there. I think it's pretty clear. Okay? Chapter 4, live holy lives. This is the focus of their expectant faith. There's no, there's no chapter divisions in the original text. I know you know this. As a matter of fact, the Greek paragraph that ends chapter 3 flows over into chapter 4. Right? So this, this pursuit of practical holiness continues here. He says, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you receive from us the instruction is how you ought to walk and to please God, right? I'm reading more of a, a literal word-for-word -word thing here, right? But what does it say there in verse 2? Someone read that for us. Okay. And what should they do with those? Stay satisfied? What does the text go on to say? Okay. Continue to grow. This is, right, verse number three, right, becomes the focus of their holy growth. This is the, this is the intentionality of it. This is the will of God that you continue to grow. And one of the fruits of that is you'll continue to be a morally pure people. So this is a group of people that are helping each other live morally pure in an immoral world. Right? They're growing each other in holiness. This is um, not primarily happening yet in this context through the public declaration of God's Word. In this context. We know they heard the gospel publicly declared. It was transformed. We're assuming it's being preached publicly. It's never talked about in five chapters. But what is being talked about are how people are taking the word of God and developing each other in Christ-likeness. And as they do that, one of many fruits is they're learning how to be morally pure in a very immoral culture. And I don't think we have anything like this in our culture that at least gets media attention. But back then, I mean, these are a group of people that used to worship and be immoral in the same worship service. 
I don't, with the ears in the room, I don't need to go into the, the history of that. So you think about that, right? In the same room, there's people now who are born again, who may have, in the name of religion, been immoral together in a previous pagan worship service. And now they're in the same room. And it would have been perfectly normal before, but now in Jesus Christ, it's completely countercultural. And what are they helping each other do? They're helping each other grow in holiness, and it's showing up in their morally pure lives. And that's what makes chapter 4, verses 4 through 8 a whole lot more real, doesn't it? Don't defraud your brother like you used to do. Now they're sitting across from you. You're not going to want to do that anymore because you're pursuing holiness. Okay. It, gets really, it gets really practical. It's kind of, kind of exciting too. And it is fascinating. I mean, in our church, I mean, I could, I could stand up. You guys might be able to do this in your church. I can stand up and show you people who are married to people. <laughs> and they used to, you, I, again, the kids, I just, it's, it's amazing. It, it's, it's crazy to me. I could not even, in my humanity, I couldn't, can't even fathom that. I wasn't raised like that. But that's how powerful and transformative the grace of God is. That I can have Sean sitting over here with his wife as disciple makers. And over here is his former girlfriend. Right? And they slept together all the time and now she's married. Right? And both are deacons or wives of deacons. And they both know that. They're both disciple makers, and they're growing farther and farther away from that reality towards Christ-likeness. They're growing towards holiness, preparing each other to see Jesus. All right? I think there's a handful of expressions of freedom here in their holy love. It says here in verses 9 and 10 that they didn't need to be taught by Paul how to love each other because they were actually taught of God how to love one another. And they were loving each other. And then by the time you get down to verse 11, there's three very practical ways that they were helping each other love each other. What are those? What's the first one in verse 11? Study to be quiet. Can I just tell you what that means in the Greek language? Don't, can, don't make issues out of non-issues. That's exactly what it means in the Greek language. Don't make issues out of non-issues. That's number two. And what does mind your own business mean? Mind your own business. Right? Disciple-making people don't have time to make issues out of non-issues. Remember we've talked about what it means to shepherd, right? And disciple-making people are not intrinsically nosy people. They don't have time. I'll tell you what, growing up, I'm telling you, I'm not throwing my past under the bus. I'm just an analysis. I love the way I, I mean, I'm so thankful for the way my parents reared me. But I can remember sitting there as a pastor kid just, Listening to people. I mean, it, every Sunday seemed to be a gossip fest of people, intrinsically nosy people. Now, look what Sister So and So is wearing today. 
why would she make her hair up and make it that tall? Doesn't she know? Doesn't she know? Remember the 70s, right? Right? And the tall hair, right? I'm not even going to be able to see the preacher this morning, right? Look how short her skirt is, you know? Pastor's never invited us over to house for dinner like she's invited those people over. I wonder what makes them so. I'm hearing this as a pastor's kid. It's like, it's like they know I'm hearing this, right? It's like they almost want me to hear this as the pastor's kid, you know? I just, I, I, I'm telling I can't. Disciple making, that's before the culture hit us. But now, it's, it's, we, I, just, I can't remember the last time I dealt with an intrinsically nosy person or someone that was making an issue out of a non-issue. I, I mean, I've told you guys the story. I told, Will's heard this before, but we had that couple that, was, that came to our church. They were, their church had started to make some doctrinal changes that were unfortunate, and they came over. He was the head of the tea party in, in Mentor, in Lake County, actually. And he was a Christian that was known for conservative politics. That's what he was known for. And a good guy. Good guy. As a matter of fact, if you come up to mentor, you're going to meet him because he and his wife give testimonies now, disciple-making testimonies. And when he, when he first came to Grace, the first Sunday morning I saw him, I, I knew what he was going to do because I knew him. I coached his kids in basketball. And, uh, and sure enough, he came up, nice guy. He says, listen, I, you know, if, if Grace is going to be my home, I just want to know that you're going to let me inform the church as often as I can about critical political things that are going on in our culture. And, and I just need to make sure that everyone knows what's going on. And, um, and I said, you know, Chuck, I appreciate that. I said, for your first few weeks here, how about if you share all of those things with me? Okay? And then I want to share with you really what Grace Church is and what she's become. Because um, you've known about us for a long time, but you really don't know us. So let's talk. He said, fine. So we met several times. And over those several times, I was able to uh, take God's word and just say, you know, uh, Chuck, this is, uh, this is who we are. This is what we want you to become. And we'd like to attach you to some spiritual mentors, you and your wife, so that we can train you to be disciple makers. And, and really, that's going to be our pledge of allegiance here. And he was, he was fine with that. And he goes, well, you're still going to let me inform you about critical political issues. I said, sure, you can do that. And then I'll discern if our people need to hear them or not. But I want to let you know, Chuck, I never talk about politics from our pulpit. I made a commitment before the Lord from 2006 forward, and I haven't yet, and I have no plans. I said, I don't think I have to. And that kind of set him back. I said, but if you bring me something serious enough that I think that's going to affect, and as a shepherd, I want to protect our flock, I'll mention it in an appropriate venue. And he said, okay. So he gets involved with their disciples. They get excited about that. They start to witness to a girl that you'll meet if you come to mentor. They win her to Christ, and they start discipling her. She's part of the tea party. And they're starting to realize that being part of the tea party is just what they are, but their primary purpose for being anywhere in the world is to be light. Right? And so they're starting to be light there. Kim gets saved. So they're following, and now they're leading, right? And now, yeah, they're start, he's starting to see it. I, I'll, I'll never forget, uh, we, um, uh, we met for lunch. He asked me to come. After Obama got elected to his second term, he said, uh, he came up to me in church in, in, in tears a week or so after the election. And I was like, oh, wow, he must be really bummed Obama got elected. He's, he's weeping. And um, I think for a certain measure, all of us were weeping for one extent or another. But um, 
to him. He said, let's have lunch. I said, okay. So I got to the lunch table and he's weeping again. He's got this folder. I was like, oh, wow, this dude's got really, he's really heavy. So I sat down and we prayed. And as soon as I got done praying, he slid the folder across the table. He said, just, just look at it, just read it. So I opened it up and it was a document from the Lake County Board of Elections. I was like, oh, okay. I didn't know what it was. So I opened it up. I started going through it. I didn't even know you could do this, right? He took our whole membership directory and he took it to the Lake County Board of Elections and he took everyone that was eligible voting age from our membership directory and he went and made sure that they voted or not. I didn't even know you could do that. So I'm sitting here finding out, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. I got to the end of it and, and it said 98% of our eligible voting members voted in the, in the general election. And he was, those weren't tears of sadness, those were tears of joy. He goes, Pastor, he said, this happens nowhere. And he said, and you don't even talk about politics. He said, what you're saying is right. Disciple-making people, they're just naturally, organically light everywhere they go. And they don't even have to think about it. I said, you got it, Chuck. You got it. I can't remember the last time Chuck's talked to me about any political issue, like at all. Seriously. At all. But you'll hear him and his wife talk about disciple-making when you come. They're just as jazzed about that now as they used to be as the leader of the Tea Party in Lake County. Okay? So anyways, that was a little story for fun. But remember the first line of verse 11. They don't make issues out of what? Right? They're not nosy. And what's the third virtue of organic love there in verse 11? That's it. Now, if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 3, you're going to see a different Greek word for work. Chapter 1 and verse 3 is the work of ministry. Right? The Greek word for work within the context of chapter 5, first chapter 4 and verse 11 is, the, is, is vocational work, not ministerial work. These people had a tremendous work ethic in their community. And because of that, what does verse 12 say? Someone read that out loud for us. Stop. The last part of verse 11 is connected to the first part of verse 12. That you may walk honestly towards them who are, who are the withouters. Lost people. At work. Right? And then the phrase goes on to say what, Will? And that you may have lasting there you go. That's talking about the benevolent fund at church. Yeah. The outsiders there, the end of verse 11, they're good workers. So they have a testimony towards those who are on the outside. The second part of verse 12, so that you have lack of nothing. These were people that did no longer needed to come to their local church for benevolent help to pay their bills or to put food on their table or shelter because they were good workers. So it's two sides of a work benefit. But the whole point was it wasn't that they were just good workers. The whole point was they were good workers because they were learning from God's word together exactly what that meant. And the whole point, it was not about working at all. 
It was not about minding your own business at all. It was not about making non-issues about non-issues at all. It was about what? We don't even do that stuff, and we do do the right thing because we're living for a completely different purpose. Every day I wake up, and when my feet hit the ground, I expect to be used of the Lord as a disciple maker. And these other things, they just happen. Okay? They just happen. Anyways, lots more I wanted to say on that, but I'm keeping you longer than we had planned anyway. This is the fourth mention of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Classic text that you're all familiar with, but I think with understood now within its proper context, it's even more powerful. You can study that out on your own. So what's happening here in chapter 5? We're pursuing some godly goals, and this is the future of their expectant faith. They live with the right perspective. We talked about that at the beginning. These were children of the day, not children of the night. They knew how to discern the times and the seasons or the epics. They weren't being caught up or distracted by the political fireworks of the day or the emotions of the day or the distractions of the day. They're able to stay focused as children of the day. They're working with each other. They're working with their leadership. They know it takes a godly team effort to do this. Okay. And verse 11 really crescendos, is the final crescendo of how this, what this team effort looks like. Could someone read verse 11 out loud? Okay, study the grammar out of even as also you do. All right, this is a pattern of consistency in their lives. And what's the pattern? The first one, Will? Comforting one another. And number two, edifying one another. Do we have a Greek word for edify? You can tell all of us. Verse 11, chapter 5. I know what it is. I just want you guys to hear it because it really is powerful. All right, that's comforting, right? It's a compound word. That's, what's the word for edify? That's parakaleo, call alongside for comfort. They're able to do that. They're doing this together, remember? Oikodomia. All right, does anyone know what oikodomia means? The root word is the Greek word oikos, which means house, right? They're building a house together. If you study the semantic domain for this in the first century, it could also reference mending torn nets. Okay? All right? They are, they are comforting each other. They're building. They're, they're, they're mending each other. And how long have they been doing it? That's just what they've done since day one. And is it a direct address to the pastors? Just as you have been doing. Ephesians 4, pastors equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. What's the work of the ministry? 1 Thessalonians 5.11. That's it. That's what my job is for my sheep as we seek to reach the lost, okay? I, I really think the rest of the chapter is what disciple-making people love to do, which is worship. Remember the pamphlet, Learners, Lovers, Worshippers? Remember this section? They love to worship. You study it out on your own time. I really believe 12 to 20, at least 12 to 23. 
right? Some people say 12 to 22 is really a context of a formal worship service. What's going on in verses 12 and 13? Can someone describe that to us? It is, but taking care of their leadership. There you go. Now, that typically sounds the opposite of what we're told to do in ministerial classes. And we will. We'll always follow 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God, of which he's given you oversight. We're going to do that. We're going to follow all the imperatives of the pastorals. We get that. But here, what are the people doing? I think it's in the context of worship. They're not being ministered down to. They're ministering what? They're ministering up. They're ministering up. And you'll find that, folks, as ministry leaders. The more this becomes a culture at your church, you'll never be more encouraged in your life because you'll be constantly being encouraged by your people. Right? Right now, I'm I'm probably living the most de-stressed, quiet and peaceful life. There's always glory and agony in ministry. I know that. But our sheep are primarily taking care of it. And they even have enough energy left over to minister to their pastor. And they're doing a great job at keeping a pretty peaceful environment in the church. Because you're living at peace with one another. It's right there. And then it gets even more descriptive of what they do not only up for the pastors, but what they do around in verse 14. What does it say? There's those three kinds of people that are always going to be in the church. So what are they capable of doing? Warn. I believe that's the root. Nuthateo. Warn. Who? The unruly. Isn't that interesting? Again, it's not a direct address to the pastors. It's a direct address to the people who are involved in verse 11 and 12 and 13. They're equipped to do the work of the ministry, which is sometimes uh, nuthateo-ing <laughs> the stubborn stiff necks in the church. Before it was like, man, this is a 911, right? We got to call the pastor. He's, he's, he's the dude that's got to confront this mess. Right? But now the people are doing it. I can tell you so many stories that would really blow your minds. I'm shocked of how our people are long down the road of Matthew 18 with some people before I even know. They're just doing it. And then they'll come back and say, yeah, we got to the last step where we thought we were going to have to bring it to the church pastor, but praise God, they changed their mind and we're good. We're, we're continuing to go. Right? One story even now, I, I don't have time to talk about it. It's just the people, the people doing this. They're warning the unruly. And what's the next thing they're doing? All right, the feeble-minded. You know what the feeble-minded is? You can study it out in your own in the original language. These are people that, that get up and they walk and they fall. <laughs> they get up, they walk, and they fall spiritually. They get up, they walk, and they fall. These are people that are having struggles with spiritual consistency in their lives. But what are they doing with those people? There it is. I think you can cross-reference there in the margin of your Bible, Galatians 6, 1 and 2. You who are spiritual, right? Don't be overtaken into fault, but you are spiritual. Go to them that are overtaken, stuck, 
right? And the Greek word nuthetao is used in Galatians 6.1 too. Use the word of God to confront them with their issue. But you know what? It's going to be a lot easier to do that because you're not stepping in their lives unknown by them. You're already relating with them. So they already know you love them. So take the word of God and just say, come on, man, let's go and be careful lest you also be tempted. So maintain the right disposition. And what's verse two say? If you do that, you're going to be fulfilling the law of Christ. Right? Right? And the final one is what? Support the weak. Again, study it out on your own. As I understand the word weak, this has to do everything to do with people that have chronic illness in the church. Right? Spiritual inconsistency is the middle part. Stubbornness is the top. The bottom is chronic illness. Do we have chronic illness in our churches today? <laughs> oh, my word. My wife has Crohn's disease. We have celiac people. Did you ever think there could be so many people allergic to so many things in your lifetime? I can't remember one kid that had one allergy when I was growing up, right? Now you have to take whole college courses, a whole degree, license to, to uh, you guys know. It's a thing. I don't, you know, my wife was reading an article the other day on gluten. Why, 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 are, why are there so many kids struggling with gluten? And she reads an article, why are so many kids struggling with lactose? And it was, pretty, it was pretty interesting, pretty simple. Everyone who had too much of a good thing when they were young is struggling with that good thing now. <laughs> and so that makes sense. You struggle with too much of a good thing, you're going to struggle with that good thing now. Anything wrong with wheat or whey? I suppose not. God created it. Anything wrong with lactose? I don't think so. But in our church, it's, it's fascinating to me. In the 1980s or 90s, we would have set up a small group study just so people could have chronic illness addressed. And I guess there would have been nothing wrong with that, right? But we would have gotten a book. We'd have gone through a book of how we handle chronic illness. Now at Grace, there's probably more chronic illness than I've ever seen before in my life. And people are just nurturing each other through discipleship. Right? They'll get together once in a while to talk about what they're learning in discipleship and how the Word of God and growing each other in the Word of God is helping them endure through their chronic illness and weakness. Right? We don't need a small group over it. Right? Again, it's amazing what you don't need when you have a disciple-making environment. What you don't need that may not be wrong. It may be good. Uh, it just is a thing. Anyways, um, that's verse 14. There's some imperatives here that I think are included in corporate worship, right? Pray without ceasing. Don't despise prophesying, right? There's some other imperatives there that you can see working into a worship environment because I think it is a worship environment. Prove all things. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, those three groups of people, it's macrothumia. They're able to, disciple-making people are able to, that, that just means there's hupomeno, which is one Greek word in the New Testament for patience. This is makrothumia. Hupomeno means to abide under pressure well by God's grace. This is just patience with people. The same word used in 2 Peter 3.9 when it describes uh, 
God's patience with mankind. He's long-suffering with all men, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come. He's not slow concerning His promise. It's patience with people. Disciple-making people are patient with people. Yeah, excellent. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Isn't that interesting? If this is a worship context. Right? Getting ready to play the text for us. <laughs> Preach it, Ken. I'm just glad you're using technology to use the Bible. That's just like awesome. All right? Anyways, um, the whole goal is, is, is verse 23. And, and what's, what's the ultimate goal of the church as we grow each other up in Jesus Christ? And that your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved, what? Blameless unto the fifth and final mention of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ, which sounds a lot like the end of chapter 3. Sounds a lot like 1 John 2, 26, 27, and 28. But verse 24 is even more powerful. Now think about verse 24 in light of the whole context of where we began in chapter 1, and where we crescendo all the way through disciple-making corporate worship in chapter 5. Who starts it and who completes it? God. Faithful is He. He is what? Faithful. It's God's nature to be Himself. And He is infinitely self-defined, infinitely self-authenticating, and infinitely Himself. In other words, he can't help himself but promise to follow through with what he's promised he'd follow through with. Right? So Philippians 1.6, He that began a good work in you will perform it. 1 Thessalonians is really how. It's interdependent people in the local church doing this together. God gets behind that. And he can't help himself to finish what he started. And it's worth the journey, for sure, for so many reasons. Okay? So that's just a brief expositional overview, to, of, I think, of a New Testament example, a post-Acts New Testament example of what disciple-making would look like and the fruit of it in a local church. Again, grace is a model this is a model. You do your model. All I'm saying is just do a model. <laughs> All right? And if we can help you out in any way, we'd love to do that. Okay? Lots more to do tomorrow starting at 9 a.m. But um, I'm really hungry. <laughs> so, so let's pray together. Will, I'll let you close out the afternoon the way you best see fit, brother. Thank you again to you and your people Amen. and all their help with the food and, and the setup and the cleanup and the hours. This is a long two days together. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.